Hello, this is Teachings in the Air with Sahilthit, a.k.a. Gerald Oldman. Today's podcast is titled Resilience and Perseverance. Not a day goes by that Sahilthit needs to be resilient and to persevere. You know, resilience means that the ability to recover quickly after being traumatized, being wounded, being cut. And you know, I, for a good part of my life, I would say I was in trauma prison. You know, because I was cut and wounded by abuse and by history, you know. What I'd see or hear in the air and feel had been cut. And there there was not a healing for it. You know, the wounds from racism, oppression, violence, that come from the colonization process in this country, had me living what I call a victim life. Because victims of trauma, generally speaking, are angry, depressed, or anxiety-ridden, fearful, fear of making mistakes, fear of failure, fear of rejection. You know, I was living that life, that victim life. It wasn't 24-7. I had instances of extreme joy and feeling accepted and part of in my life. But underneath all of that, some would say the skeletons in the closet, I had that trauma. So when people aren't treated for trauma, it results of an individual being unhealthy, not sound in the body. When I think of the numbers of diabetes in our population, indigenous population, heart disease, you know, all of those sicknesses that are preventable. It's a sad picture. You know, on the mind, you know, and we're angry and negative. It's not good for the children to see. It's not good in our own body. You know, they say that if you're stressed out all the time, it could lead to heart disease or, you know, have problems with your heart, your blood pressure. And of course, then it's our spirit, my spirit, that holding my body together. I lost that will to be successful. Or to pursue dreams is a better way of saying it. But when you're successful at everything you do, your life is good. That means you, you do your best, you do a good job, you start, you finish. So the logical result with our people that we're not treated for trauma 
was unhealthy families and communities. You know, broken families, scattered families. You know, we can't deny that, that that exists in our family, in our community. You know, and uh, it took me a long time because I would say, why are we this way? How come? Why so much suicide, violence, addictions, poverty? You know, that narrative. And then over time, you know, I learned the history of this country and learned that there were people before I was even born probably before my dad and grandfather's time, that talked about our people as the Indian problem. And these ones that were talking like that were totally in love with power. They wanted wealth, individual wealth, individual ownership of land. So they come up with solutions to get to those resources, the gold, the trees, the salmon, the farmlands, you know, agricultural lands. They come up with a solution. And the solution of reservations, lands reserved for Indians, tiny little tracts of land on this continent, in the least desirable places taken away from lakefront property, oceanfront property, you know, right across the land. And the other part of the solution was to take the children and put them into residential schools and also Indian day schools and start to assimilate them, take them away from their language their rituals, their ceremonies that kept us healthy for thousands of years. So segregation was their plan. We did not ask for reservations, our residential schools, our Indian day schools. You know, and a part of us in that solution too was to lock us out of the economy. Nowhere under reserve when they first started you have to have permission even to leave the reserve from the indian agent and if you're going to sell something you needed permission from the indian agent so we're on these small tracts of land called reservations so we do not have access to resources i learned this First-hand for my dad, we're driving on our reservation, and I seen this sawdust piles and some crumbling structures. I said, what's that? He says, oh, your uncles had a sawmill there. I said, oh, and he says, yes, they were cutting ties for the railroad, Pacific Great Eastern. It was just coming in through our territory. They were cutting ties and selling them to the railroad. I asked my father, why isn't it running now? Why did it stop? He says they couldn't get trees. They can go off the reserve to get trees. They're horse loggers, (laughs) pulling logs out by horse. And they were told to stop, that they needed a permit to cut those trees from Crown land. So they went to get a permit and all the timber was spoken for by big companies. So it's proof we're locked out of the economy. You know, so that's the reservation. And it became like a lawless society. Something would happen between humans as they do all over the world. If you got a justice system or a system to deal with it, then you deal with it. Well, Canada 
was to take care of us. But they were, it's like they put us in the res and left us there. So, as a result, we have a lot of unfinished business between families, in the families, on the res. Conflict resolution that we used to use was not there now. So before contact, we're very healthy populations, strong in mind, body, and spirit. We had a way of life. There was a justice system, education system. And in those systems allowed us to have a sustainable way of life. That means it's the same year after year. Plenty of salmon, game like deer and moose, food. Because of our laws, our policies about resource extraction, resource use of water. So we were very healthy. And now it's not uncommon to hear some of our leaders say, we're in a state of emergency. We're now in crisis, and crisis means a turning point. Or it seems we're turning to negative. So in the res, or I'll just say with people, indigenous people, all of a sudden there's addictions, violence, abuse, broken families. We became sickly. And for some, I don't know how many, but I suspect a good number, life had become hateful to them. As a result, we're overrepresented in suicide, overdose, accidents, ill health. That's what happened from segregation, from being locked out of the economy. And of course, you know, we were also seen as inferior to the European peoples. There's something wrong with us in that way they could do what they want. You know, so I grew up in this. You know, it wasn't until I was probably 25 that I started to learn the shared history of Canadians and my people, the Statlium people. And of course, I became angry when I learned about the reservation, about the residential school, day schools, because I was part of it, all of it. So I had that period of life of just being angry and skeptical, you know, a feeling of no hope. And, you know, in my growing up life, I got, got into reading about history. I, I loved reading about history so much that I wanted to become a history teacher, you know, even though I didn't know any way to, where to get to do that. In my reading, all of a sudden I started to, you know, acquire role models, teachers, gurus. Guru means someone that brings a light, you know. Because I was reading all kinds of books at that, you know, as a teenager and a young adult. I learned a statement, freedom fighters, people fighting for to preserve a way of life. I started to uh, develop this list of people that I admired. Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, Pontiac, Shay, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Dan George, <laughs> Chief Dan George, and Nelson Mandela. Oh, there's another one from Mexico, El Zapata. So all of these ones, you know, were out there 
Well, the ones that were there when I was young and my was Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela. So I hear about Nelson Mandela, about this man in South Africa that had been in prison for 27 years. I started to learn about apartheid in South Africa. And I learned as I become politicized with Statlium, indigenous way of life with Canada, one of my teachers said the apartheid system in South Africa was modeled after how Canada segregated indigenous people onto reservations and that they needed a pass to leave the reservation. And that's what townships were in South Africa. And then I, in 1995, I guess shortly after Nelson became the leader, first black leader of South Africa, well, there were many leaders before in their system. But in the modern, I guess you could say South Africa. And there was an education conference at BCIT where I was working, British Columbia Institute of Technology. And uh, there were representatives there from South Africa. And I got to speak to one of the representatives, a South African woman. So I said, you meet Nelson? And she says, no. But I was in a big conference hall, and he was the speaker. And she said, Nelson talked to us, thanked us for our hard work, and said, I come today to ask you to do 14 hours a day now for a while. And she said, everybody in the hall stood up and said, yes, Nelson. And I think, whoa, you know, and I'm impressed. And I asked her. I said, um, you know, I wondered, I heard of Nelson Mandela being in prison on Robben Island for 27 years. And I asked her, I said, oh, how did he maintain his, himself, his resilience. And she said, oh, we have a belief in South Africa that Robin Highland and the prison he was in happened to be a, one of the power spots on the planet Earth in a sense of a powerful healing spot that they're around the planet. And she said, that's why he stayed Nelson Mandela. <laughs> I said, oh, I believe that. Uh, so after that, there was a documentary about fighting apartheid in one of the little cinemas in Vancouver. It was over three nights. It was such a long documentary. But there I'd learned that Nelson and his group knew they were going to be sent to prison. So they appointed some of their members to go overseas and to tell the people about apartheid, to start an anti-apartheid movement out of South Africa. And I had learned that they had done that and they were successful. An example, Fuji Films was providing the films for the identity badges that 
the South Africans had to wear in the townships. They all had to have these identity badges. So they boycotted. They boycotted um, Granny Smith apples. They boycotted rugby matches where South Africa was playing. It was such a well-done documentary. Really clear what could happen when people are committed and clear in their communication. So they're fighting apartheid. My wife said she wrote a letter to stop apartheid when she was in university. You know, it shows it like it's, I imagine, like a wind going around the planet, alerting everyone about apartheid in South Africa. And another place of my learning about South Africa was a novel, The Power of One by Bryce Courtney. And I got the feel of oppression from that book. And of course, you know, today I know at that time I knew barely anything about life in South Africa. So I've been blessed that I can travel in 2022 my wife and I went to South Africa. You know, we landed in Johannesburg, and it's a big city in South Africa. And of course, you know, every chance I get, I'll read a brochure, I'll look at things about the history. Sometimes I Google it, you know, but this time I've seen some. That Johannesburg started because of the gold in them there are hills and also diamonds. And it reminded me of my homeland, where I'm from, my community. There was one of the largest gold deposits for a while. Right, right, right where we hunted and fished. And that's why there is a town of Lulwit. That's why there is Victoria, Vancouver. Because they started these centers where the resources would flow through, were actually dug up out of the ground. So that's Johannesburg. Then my wife and I went to do a little tour of the animals, what they call the Big Five. And what struck me was that this camp that we're at, they take us out us in jeeps to look at animals birds, creatures in South Africa. That um, the camp was totally run by indigenous South Africans. And I felt so at home that they were like us, you know, they would, one of the younger, I don't know, even younger, but one of the men there would address my wife as auntie. We're out on the tour, and then we stopped, and there was a little barbecue, and they were handing out skewers of sausages and different proteins, you know. And um, he gave her one, and she took one. And he comes back again with more. She says, no, 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 I'm done. And, she says, and he says, please, Auntie, just take one more, you know. And remind me of our community. So I could call them uncle, auntie, niece. No problem. And they were so friendly. Such wonderful smiles. You know. <laughs> yeah. I saw the giraffe, the rhino, the lion, the leopard, the ears of a hippopotamus. You know, many kinds of deer-like creatures. You know, the hyena. <laughs> All these different animals in their habitat. And we've seen two men. We're out early in the morning. 
they were walking. And our guide said there were guardians of the animals, especially the rhino. And we, because uh, we've seen a rhinoceros, a big creature, birds all over it. I'd see birds crawling right in the ear. And we've seen this rhinoceros didn't have its horn. And he said they cut it off so the poachers wouldn't kill it. And I says, oh. And these men were out all night guarding the animals. Indigenous South African men. Yeah, so after we left there, we go back to Johannesburg. Then we go for a tour. You know, the tour of Constitution Hill. You know, and that's where I see this prison. And we we're going through the prison, and I see Mandela Gandhi's name and big letters on the wall outside wall of the prison. And that's where I learned that Mandela and Gandhi were in this prison together. You know, in that prison, they had videos, and we had a tour guide, and the cruelty of that place, it just saddened me to hear what happened there to those people, those South Africans. You know, it's uh, what humanity can do. eh? Not all of humanity. I need to keep reminding myself. I've come to believe there's very few that are that cruel, but somehow they gain power. And we're in Soweto. Went to this memorial museum. And it was to honor the youth who gave their lives in the struggle for freedom and democracy in South Africa. There's a name on the wall, Hector Peterson. And we had a guide walking us around the Memorial Museum because there were buildings and there was plazas. And he told us, about Hector Peterson. He said the adults, the parents in South Africa were going to demonstrate because the South African, which were Dutch peoples, were making the law where all of the language in the school was to be South African, which is made up of Dutch and other languages. And the parents said, no, we don't want that. We want our children and our language. So they were going to do big demonstrations in South Africa. And the high school students in Soweto, of course, listened to their parents. And how they decided, I don't know, and there's leadership in high school groups too. I was <laughs> just imagining these young high school students. Said, we're going to demonstrate too. But we won't do it in the same day. We're going to have a two-day demonstration. We'll leave the schools and we'll demonstrate. And uh, so they went out to demonstrate. And Hector Peterson was 12 years old, was in a student demonstration. The police opened fire on the students. And Hector Peterson was shot and collapsed. And another South African man seen him and picked him up and was running with him. And a journalist, a South African indigenous journalist, journalist, snapped a picture of it, of this man carrying Hector Peterson. And the man ran with him to get him to medical attention to see if they could save his life. But Hector Peterson died. And our guide said, the man, he said, first off, he says, a journalist, 
showed the photo to the editor of the newspaper who was a white South African. And he had a story with a photo. And he was told, you have a choice to make. Because if we print the story and show the photo, your name is on there. You'll more likely be killed. Or we can just leave it, not put it in. But the man said, no, put it in. And he left South Africa and returned when Nelson Mandela was freed. And also for the young man that picked up Hector Peterson, he too left and never come back to South Africa. I was listening to our tour guide talk about this demonstration. And I, it's a sadness overcome me. Because he says 170 students were killed, not just Hector Peterson. You know, when you hear the, when I hear those things about adults opening fire on students, can't help but be shook. I was standing there and I was traumatized by these images. And our tour guide comes up to me, standing there, misty-eyed. He says, are you okay? And I told him, you know this? I don't know how people can do this. He says, where are you from? I said, Canada. And I said to him, the apartheid system come from Canada. We have reservations there too, just like town, townships. We're segregated too. I said, how could people harm children and youth in this way? And I told him, in Canada, at the residential schools, we're segregated and we're in school away from Canada. And I told him there's 38,000 registered cases of sexual physical abuse in the residential school. And I was very emotional. And he's standing there, puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, I understand. And that comforted Help me to become resilient again. They're saying that, like I was saying, 700 youth killed demonstrating. So it was a powerful trip, journey to go see the homelands of one of my heroes. Nelson, it was, uh, <laughs> I'm so glad I went because I, I hear about Nelson. Where was a little group of people? And my wife asked, why do you guys follow Nelson? Or what make you love Nelson? And his grandmother says, we all love Nelson. We believed every word he said. And I said to myself, you know, that's, that's got to be true. Because he spent 27 years in prison and come out with his beliefs intact. And of course, I say to myself, is there a leader that I believe every word they say. In indigenous leadership, there was one leader that I knew. He's passed now. I believed every word he said. We're doing direct action in our territory. And he is telling me he went to gas up his truck and he was by himself. And he says, I went. And all of a sudden, Jerry, these vehicles come screeching up to the gas station and out jumps these white men. And they surround me. 
He says, I put the gas nozzle back on the pump. And I intertwine my fingers and push them out. He looks at them. And he says, I'm prepared to die for what I believe in. Are any of you? Come on. <laughs> and he said, they left. They could see the commitment. And they believed every word he said. And they left him. Nelson said the same things, that he's prepared to die for his beliefs. You know, I heard Nelson on, in movies and news clips, and, and I believe him. He would say, I have flaws. I'm a flawed man. He's the first man I hear say that. Because many of my heroes, people would say they were something shady about them. You know, they say yes. But the commitment and the resilience of Nelson Mandela is a lesson for all of us. Because his wish for equality for everyone in South Africa, for democracy, that everybody can participate, was so strong in him. You know, and we're in Soweto. It's the only place in the world where there's two recipients, you know, the Nobel Prize for Peace, Nelson Mandela in Tutu. That's how out there they were, I guess. They let people know. Now, like when I come back from South Africa, I started working right away and, um, as at the University of British Columbia. And I was in this classroom and they had the uh, air conditioning cranked. And I'm a horse when it comes to air conditioning. I get chilled. I get... But I got so chilled, my teeth were chattering. And I told the, one of the faculty, said, I have to leave. And he says, how come? I said, I'm getting chilled. I need to go to the room and cover up with blankets. <laughs> so I did. And my wife phones. And, Are you Okay. I said, oh, I got chilled. I'm in bed now. Oh. She says, you go up to Emerge at UBC. Get yourself checked up because you might have picked something up in South Africa. Okay. So I went up to the Emerge. Told them where I'd been. Told them I had my vaccination records and everything and told them, you know, I got chilled. And I had a high fever, and I got there, and I had a headache. So they're thinking different things, that, I don't know, malaria, whatever, from South Africa. So I'm an eMERGE. You know how it is in eMERGE, they got these curtain things around you, and you're, I was laying there. And they come and take my blood, take my temperature, you know. And, you know, doing, the, doing their job. They come and said, we have one more test we want to do. And it might be uncomfortable. We're going to take some fluid from your spine. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so they done that. They said, we're going to have to wait, you know, for the results. I said, okay. So I was laying there, and it's probably around 4 o'clock in the afternoon when they done the spinal thing. Two hours later, 6 o'clock, you know, and I, still nothing. I'm wondering if I'm going to be here all night. 6.30 comes along, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm fed up with this, you know. And then I said to myself, out of the blue, 
said, if Nelson can spend 27 years in prison, you can spend a day or a night in ICU, Jerry. Such a small comparison to what he'd done. But they come at 7 o'clock and say, no, you're clear. You can go. But just take it easy. If something comes up, you get headaches and fever, you come back again. I said, okay. And I left. So we all need to put our minds together to see what we can do for the children. After talking to you on this podcast called Resilience, we must persevere now for the children, their children, and their children's children. And follow these leaders that had perseverance and work together. You know, when we're in Johannesburg at the airport, one of the things I noticed that I felt so comfortable there was because the indigenous South Africans were like indigenous people. <laughs> they are indigenous people, but like at home. First Nations, they have a sense of humor. We're in Johannesburg and we're struggling with our luggage and this and man comes up and he says, I'll get you a cart. My wife goes with him and he gets a cart for her, you know, to load the suitcases on. And he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, ma'am. He says, it has no engine. <laughs> you know, and he laughs, you know. <laughs> Then I was pushing the suitcases. My wife had gone to get something. And this man comes up to me. And he says, my king, can I be of help to you? <laughs> you know, and I looked at this indigenous South African. And he's got this wonderful smile. Even his eyes are smiling. And I wanted to give him a tip just for saying my king. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it felt so good. I know that I don't have the big picture. I didn't live in their communities. But what I see and hear from the ones in public, I felt comfortable. There's not too many places in the world I felt that. The other place was in St. Kitts in the Caribbean. A lot of um, Rasta people. You know, they come, these people from Africa. They, they, they really, they could see I was indigenous and they want to talk to me and they want to be with me. You know, and, it, and I just felt so, it's an inclusive feeling. And they were vibrant, too. Just like the ones in South Africa. Like in Soweto. We're going down the street. We're going to go find a restaurant to eat. And we come across these street performance. And there are drums and singing. And they have regalia on. And we stop and I watch. And they finished a song and I went over and talked to them. Told them, it's so good to see you and to hear you. I love your music. And they had me sit down with them, and they had people taking pictures of, of me and them from their group. And then they sing again, and I'm keeping time with them. And They were so, they looked healthy to me, you know, and so warm. <laughs> yes, we went to Nelson's house in Soweto. And there's places where there's bullet holes in his house. We've seen this small house he lived in. That's where I've seen the only neighborhood in the world with two Nobel Peace Prize winners. So of all my role models and teachers, 
I got to go to Nelson's house, walk the streets where Nelson walked. Walk in the prison he was in. And I would flash to his pictures and times I seen him and newsreels and things and his gentleness and his demeanor of dignity. It just multiplied for me in South Africa. It was a good trip because I learned about perseverance there. And I heard about the townships and the poverty there. Then to see people, they wrote their constitution. One of their pillars was reconciliation. Big lesson on forgiveness. After I seen how they were treated in the prisons, locked out of the economy too, and they still talk reconciliation. That's real perseverance to me. Real. You know, like that thought of, they just don't talk about it. They do something. There was individuals there that were working hard to bring equality and democracy to South Africa. One of the thoughts I had was, because when I was there, we'd hear about troubles with the politics in South Africa. I said, uh, maybe one of the mistakes. I said, I don't know, but this is just my thought. One of the mistakes was that they turned to the model that they were living under. Because they called it, they, you know, all over the world, they say where they elect leaders that there's democracy. And I was saying to myself, perhaps they should have followed their tribal ways. And that's what I say about us in Canada, too, as indigenous people. We should go back to our laws, our ways of life. Because this democracy of electing chief and council in our communities hasn't been working for us. It's proven by the poverty, the health problems, the social problems in our communities. That perhaps we should go back to our way that worked for thousands of years. I don't know if that's possible, but that's my dream, that we go back to that as a people, and we have resilience and perseverance. Because when I think about it, we had our Nelson Mandela's, our Shays, too, as indigenous people. All those ones that refused to let the language die. Our role models and teachers. The ones that refused to let the food sovereignty go, learn how to harvest our food the way we did, dry the salmon and the deer meat. Those were resilient ones the ones that maintained uh, ceremony and rituals, might be small in number, but they're there. The music, traditional music, the medicines, they're there. So, we, I, I believe we need to go back to that. That's one man, one man, that's the Hilfitz belief, the Hilfitz thinking that we have resilience. We can recover after trauma. Healing is possible for all of us. And to become original human beings the way we were born as babies, pure. And to think about the people, think about Mother Earth. When I seen those ones working in the they call them parks in South Africa where they want to maintain a life for those animals and birds, all the creatures. They were real stewards, those people working there. 
you know, so I hear talk of sovereignty with some indigenous people. And being sovereign means you have a territory and you make laws over that territory and you enforce them. You have authority and jurisdiction. So our authority and jurisdiction was for the people, for the land. And I believe that's where we need to go. And uh, work together. Be one. So that's my podcast about resilience and perseverance. I'm so blessed to be able to travel to South Africa after COVID and to walk like I was saying where Nelson walked, Tutu. All those other ones, because they were not, they didn't do it by themselves. Nelson didn't do it by himself. He had others think like him, believe him. They believe in each other and they move together. So let's... (laughs) I guess we could all go to that place where people believe every word we say. Take self-discipline, commitment, healing, to heal ourselves, heal myself. So, (laughs) So that's my podcast, you know, about resilience and perseverance. So let's persevere in doing what we can for this country we live in, this beautiful land that is suffering now, droughts and floods and change of temperature, all of that. Let's Put our minds together and see what we can do for Mother Earth. Because she does mother all of us, feeds us, protects us. So you have a wonderful time with your family and your friends. And that's a role model. Resilience and perseverance for all of our children.